All right, guys. I'm Brandon Mercer. I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, April 28th, 2016, and this is episode 24 of Curbage. Awesome. So what are we going to talk about this week? Uh, so I guess we have some follow-up. Um, got some emails about trim. People explaining to us what trim is, and I think yeah. you have uh, something about that. Yeah, so DLG, he uh, he reached out to me on uh, IRC, and he was mentioning a little bit about trim and uh, how it works and where it's at in OpenBSD and all that kind of stuff, so that was helpful. So we'll touch on that. And I had some um, database stuff that I was working on this week at uh, work, so I want to talk about ORMs and database layer in an application specifically and then more specifically Postgres using a with statement in Go because I think that that uh, I finally feel like I have some resolution to those particular areas and also we had somebody uh, write in asking us about uh, the user interface a GUI in the installer for an operating system so maybe we'll give our unbiased opinions on that (laughs) Do we have unbiased opinions? Uh, I have an opinion. <laughs> it might be biased. I don't know. Yeah, coming from the OpenBSD land. All right, let's get started then. Uh, Brandon, what is Trim? Yeah, so Trim is basically um, with a solid-state disk, you have all these um, blocks, and when they're written to, they have to be zeroed out first. So even if you're going to only write a partial um, area of this block, you need to um, read everything off of it, update the area, or update in memory the region that you were going to update, and then rewrite the entire block back. And um, obviously that has a cost, and it's um, if you were trying to write to an entire block that was already supposed to be reclaimed, obviously there's... Um, some overhead in doing that. So trim is unique to a solid state disk. It's, um, it's basically one of those things where we have a new technology, it has some quirks about it, and this is something invented for that. Um, and I want to talk a little bit. So there's a couple things here, like the operating system maps, um, like, um, blocks and it says like oh write to this particular block and you know update this piece of information in this particular block and then you have like the um ssd has a firmware that maps that um logical block to an actual block on the solid state drive itself because the firmware kind of does some wear leveling um these uh, blocks in a solid state drive are just flash memory and they have a finite number of writes that you can do to them. So it tries to make sure you're not writing 10,000 times to one block and, um, you know, one or two or three times to another block. It tries to even those out. So it handles this mapping between those two, um, uh, you know, virtual versus physical regions of the block. Um, so anyway, um, the, the thing about doing trim is that um, right now what would happen without any trim support is, let's say you say, I delete a file. Um, you would send this 
command to um, the SCSI layer and that goes through to the solid state drive or the hard drive and it would say, yep, free up this inode. And then, you know, that's pretty much it. Um, and then without any additional work in a solid state drive, you still have those regions um, or cells or whatever you want to call them on the solid state drive that need to be zeroed out before they can be efficiently used again. So what you have to do, it winds up bu bubbling all the way back up to the file system level is basically the way this works. Um, the file system itself has to say, oh, not only do you um, free up this inode, but now you need to um, zero out these uh, logical blocks <clears throat> as well, and it'll send the trim command. And um, that will tell the solid state drive, these particular blocks or regions are freed up now. Go ahead and trim them at the same time. And obviously it's going to translate that virtual blocking into the physical block blocking and actually zero those regions out. And um, the one other caveat with that, and this is what uh, DLG was telling me, is that um, with uh, serial ATA you have things like native command queuing and stuff. So um, in order to do the trim command, not only do you have to um, update the file system layer to alert all these lower subsystems about the trim, you also have to disable native command queuing, do the trim, and then re-enable na native command queuing, and obviously have all the bookkeeping to go along with that. So hopefully um, that is a little bit better explanation of how those particular things work. Um, and uh, I think it's kind of fascinating. I think that uh, solid state drives are interesting. Um, I think that uh, M2 stuff is really, really fast um, and interesting. It has, you know, similar type challenges, but they're a little bit different because um, uh, just the way it interfaces, you're not doing, um, going through serial ATA or whatever like that. It just sits right on the bus. Uh, I guess I still don't understand how it affects full disk encryption, but maybe I'm thinking of it only in the case of like TrueCrypt, mm -hmm. where it like encrypts the entire drive with like um, garbage data so that if you analyzed the raw drive, you wouldn't be able to even tell that there's anything there. Mm -hmm. It would just look all random, but maybe... Uh, like the encryption that Mac OS and OpenBSD are doing uh, is kind of like on a block level so that on the raw disk um, there are actually blocks that would not be used and so trim could still be used. Yeah, that's my understanding as well, that it is on the block level. Um, and I think that's probably one of the only more practical ways that you can do that. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't understand that stuff too well, so... Um, if you uh, want to know more about all that kind of stuff, there are other people to ask. <laughs> right oh. So, what did DLG send you? Oh, yeah, he, he did. He sent me a diff, and it um, is, um, let me see, from sometime back in 2013. He said it was basically working and that um, he was storing data on his drive and getting data off his drive and it didn't seem to break anything. Um, let me see. 
it, it touches a lot of different things here. It's in the SCSI layer. Um, oh, here's the other thing. You have to think about uh, also, too, like VFS layer. Why am I drawing a blank? Oh, the disk caching, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see what else is in here. It's actually quite a large diff. has very many tentacles. Yeah, I mean, it, it reaches into so much stuff. Um, SCSI, SD bar, sysbuff, um, FFS. Where else does this go? goes down into um, FFS extern, uh, MFS, VNOPS. Yeah, I mean, it, it literally touches everything. And I guess this is just kind of like the first part. I mean, I think you also have to... Um, DLG was mentioning that you have to touch like... Um, all the other areas like um, FDisk and all that kind of stuff need to be updated as well. Mm. So, Alrighty. Well, thanks, DLG, and everyone that wrote in about trim. Yeah. What else do we have? So someone uh, also wrote in about uh, using GUIs in the installer um, and just wanted to get our thoughts. And I think this is really specifically... Um, you know, um, so OpenBSD uses uh, a text installer, and there's other, you know, BSD installers that have graphical installers and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the the comment was that we should talk about fancy mouse integrated GUI installers. And um, I guess I'll let you go first because I'm just going to complain about them. Yeah, I don't really know the. I don't really see the point. Um, I mean, FreeBSD has kind of a middle ground where it's uh, like the NCurses or Curses uh, interface. Mm-hmm. So you get kind of a GUI that uh, steps you through it, but it's not, you know, having to run X11 or anything on the installer. That PCBSD might use some kind of graphical thing. I've never actually looked at it, but um, yeah, OpenBSDs is pretty simple. Just text on a command line and walking you through it. But I, you know, having installed OpenBSD many times over many years, um, I can get through an OpenBSD install in a couple minutes. Yeah. And most of that is just waiting for like the sets to download or whatever. But like, if you've ever tried to install, um, there's one Linux distribution that has no installer. I can't remember which one it is. Is it Arch? It's basically like, the installer is it drops you to a command prompt and you have to do literally everything manually and that's supposed to be like cool or something. <laughs> I don't really get it. It's like it seems like a lot of a big waste of time when it could just Yeah, it is Arch. I'm looking at the installer wiki page. Which uh-huh. is dumb because practic I'm sure everybody that's installing Arch has to go to this wiki page and read the instructions. Yep. So why don't you just automate it into a tiny shell script like OpenBSD has. You know, in, in OpenBSD, you can still drop to a command line if you need to do manual stuff. I mean, I still need to do manual software aid configuration sometimes. But all of the other stuff, like going through the disk partitioning and setting your time zone and um, setting a root password, like everything is manual in uh, Arch. Yeah. So that seems dumb. But um, I guess the opposite end of that is... Uh, Having a full GUI installer like uh, Fedora or one of those other Linux distributions, which I've run into problems with on newer laptops that don't uh, that aren't really well supported yet. So 
you kind of run into the opposite problem there is um, X11 doesn't work properly right. on uh, some systems, so you can't really install it very well. So, yeah. So here's the other thing. Like, um, first off, I don't understand what problem having uh, a, a, a GUI or an installer that requires you to have a mouse fixes. I don't understand how it makes <laughs> the experience better. And um, as someone who's installed Windows literally hundreds of times and who's installed OpenBSD thousands and thousands of times, I don't understand um, why that benefits anything to the installation process. You were talking about having the installer kind of script and automate the process. You can't script and automate uh, something that has, you know, a GUI with mouse interaction and this and that and the other thing. And you can basically make OpenBSD install itself to many, many machines uh, just automatically. So um, I think, honestly, it's a step backwards, and um, I fail to see the benefit of it. And um, when I saw it, I saw it um, I got this new machine, and the BIOS was like, hey, look, we have mouse support. And I was like, what is the point of that? And this is like 50 times worse than, you know, um, just navigating through some menus with the arrow keys. Mm -hmm. um, nine times out of ten, uh, I'm using the arrow keys anyway because the mouse goes off and does some weird thing when you save some menu and then you have to unplug it and plug it back in anyway. So um, anyway, I think the complexity isn't warranted and I don't think it benefits any. I think that uh, text-based installers are um, easier to, you know, roll out 10,000 virtual machines or whatever on anyhow. Yeah, and OpenBSD still supports architectures that may not have a graphical console. So yeah. you can't do, you'd still have to have that fallback of a text mode anyway. So, yeah, I don't really, I, I mean, I don't think anyone is realistically saying that um, OpenBSD is going to get a graphical installer. Uh, and I don't really see the benefit in switching to like a FreeBSD style where it um, kind of walks you through dialogues on a console. Yeah. Um, just because the installer in OpenBSD is so, I don't know, streamlined. It yeah. just, uh, it works really well. And so many people um, that have to constantly install snapshots and stuff are so used to it. Um, I mean, even just changing one question in the installer um, trips people up like, wait, uh, I just typed a username here and it's asking me a different question because they don't even, you don't even need to read the the questions yeah uh, you can just kind of bang through it yeah talking about that user experience piece i think that's where we can be a little bit more objective and just say that um it's easier to interface with the tools with some scripting than it is to build an entire uh user interface and have some sort of you know user ex coherent user experience on top of that um Anybody who's ever built like a web interface for PF or a web interface for IP tables or anything like that, um, you know how ridiculous it gets um, in order to expose options to a user without um, uh, letting them do something that will break and at the same time not making it so complex that there's no point in really having the user interface, the graphical user interface Anyway, so and I think the same thing applies here. 
the OpenBSD installer is made simple and concise on purpose, and I think that um, when you put a GUI on top of it, it would be such a massive undertaking to get right that it's just not practical. Yeah, and uh, you know, all of that used to need to fit fit on a floppy, which mm-hmm. isn't really relevant anymore, and I'm sure it's going to go away soon. But uh, there's still really not much reason to uh, to bloat that with anything fancy, uh, especially now that like. Um, the installer has the automated partitioning. Right. I think that was probably the most daunting uh, question for new uh, people new to OpenBSD. And now it kind of does it all for you if you let it. So yeah, there's not really, uh, it's not very daunting anymore. No, not at all. All right. I think that's all we have to say about that. Yeah. Let's not have any more strong opinions about stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking at our um, graphs for downloads for our show, mm-hmm. and I totaled it up, and it's about 850 downloads per week, which seems like a lot. Yeah. I can't believe there's 850 people listening to the show. And it used to be around 1,000, and then I went in and changed the uh, the way that it calculates those, mm-hmm. and I made it discard all of the like partial reads of MP3 files. So the way that it tallies those is... It's a unique IP address fetching the full MP3 file mm-hmm. over the course of 24 hours. So if you're one user and you're listening to all of the shows, it only counts you once. And I figured that would kind of balance out the um, the bots or something that are downloading it every week. Yeah. Um, but it's still 850 a week. That's all I really had to say about that. thought it was yeah. interesting. Well, thanks for listening, guys. That's great. Yeah, so if there are really 850 of you, email us and let us know who you are (laughs) and uh, how you heard of us and all that jazz. Not that we're really doing anything with the information, but um, I got an iPad Pro a while back. Yeah. Once I sold my, um, or returned my Pixel C, Mm -hmm. I replaced my iPad Mini with the, the new iPad Pro the 9.7 inch one, uh, cause the 12 inch one seems way too big for an iPad. Yeah. So, uh, it's kind of neat. I got the pencil with it. So I've been drawing a lot, which is fun cause I haven't drawn in a long time. I used to draw uh-huh. a lot when I was a kid and, uh, the pen is really neat. There like, isn't really much lag between drawing on the screen and it showing up and it has like the palm rejection. So you can rest your palm on the screen while you're drawing and it's pretty neat. Nice. I like it. It's a good size. I got the keyboard cover for it, which isn't really that great. The uh, keyboard layout is obviously a lot better than the uh, Pixel C, which is the reason why I returned it. Yeah. But with the iPad Pro, it's the same dimensions as the iPad Air 2, for which there are many keyboard like cases and covers, and like there's ones that kind of turn it into a little laptop where it's like a hard keyboard and you can basically fold it up like a little clamshell dealy. But the, uh, the soft one that I got from Apple, uh, it's all right. It, it works. The key travel is really short and all that, but the key layout is good. The thing that's, um, screwing me up though, is I keep using, uh, I keep hitting the caps lock key to use, <laughs> to type control in yeah. the SSH client, because obviously I have that mapped on my 
laptops to use to be control. And you can't do that on the iPad. So, uh, that's about it. Yeah. Uh, I, I have no like related comment, but I have an observation and that I made earlier on IRC and it's like nowadays, like because of writing software and working with hardware and seeing the, the insanity that I see every day, I can't look at a tech product nowadays and not wonder how many people have like lost their mind and went off the deep end when they were designing this thing or working on the software for it. Uh, and I don't know why that is, but like, I don't see like, um, Oh, what problem does this solve anymore? I just see like, I wonder how burnout that poor software developer is. <laughs> or like, <laughs> I wonder how many times that team had to go out drinking to, to just calm their nerves after, you know, crazy and in, like insane deadlines or whatever it is. Mm hmm. And so I feel, uh, maybe apathy towards picking on poor keyboard layouts. I just want, I just want them to be what I want. Mm -hmm. And, and maybe that's a little selfish because <laughs> they're like trying to build a product and it's crazy and it's hard to get right. So anyway, I figured I'd throw that out there. <laughs> well, I mean, like the, the iPad Pro keyboard layout is the same layout as uh, a MacBook and it's, you know, it makes sense. I don't think anyone really faults the, faults Apple for the MacBook keyboard layout. Mm -hmm. Um, but like the Google one, it's like, what the hell are you thinking? It just doesn't make any sense. Um, everything is spaced out on the left. And then as it gets to the right, it gets really crammed together. Uh, <laughs> it just, it's like, you know, they ran out of room and they're like, eh, f it. yeah, yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. So I don't really have much else to say about the iPad. It's neat. It's got that screen that like shifts like the color based on the light of the room that you're in. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So it, um, obviously you don't, you, you want to turn it off if you're like editing photos maybe, but, uh, it's, I don't know, just makes it a lot nicer to use. Um, so you're not staring at a, a blue screen all the time, a bluish screen, I guess. Yeah. Those are the things that I think really matter to me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Somebody who works on that kind of stuff, I, I think that's valuable. Um, when you're sitting out in the sun, hey, increase the brightness automatically and have it actually work, you know? Right. So, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, what else? I was looking at the uh, the ThinkPad 13 came out recently, which is kind of a, a slightly lower end uh, than like the X260, I think they're up to. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a 13-inch laptop, obviously, but it has the, uh, the Trek stick and... Uh, decent display, but it's fairly cheap and fairly thin. Uh, I don't really have any other information other than I was looking at it and it looked neat. Yeah, uh, I think, I, I, I don't know. I think I hear a lot of people in the market for laptops lately. Every time I turn around, somebody's asking me like, what do I get? What do I get? What do I get? Yeah. And I think for, you know, the average consumer, I'm always pointing them at the MacBooks and, uh, you know, the iPad kind of stuff it just seems to fit every like everything that they want to do they're like hey i want to look at the tv guide or hey i want to mm -hmm. pull up this you know site on the internet and i'm like yeah that, they'll do that yeah i'm i'm very uh, anxious to get the new macbook pro or i guess see it when it comes out um because i've been using this 11 inch macbook air for um this is a mid 2013 model so this is like the longest I've ever kept a laptop. Um, but it's like the old non-retina screen. It's 1366 by 768. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually like, I used to like really small laptops and I'm actually getting to the point where 11 inch 
laptop, the screen is too small for me. Yeah. Um, and it's not really terminals and stuff as it is like Xcode and Android Studio. Yeah. These like IDEs that have 9 million things. Um, and they kind of encroach on your, the little window that actually has your code. And so it's getting harder to actually work with my code in these IDEs. And I don't really want to use these IDEs, but it's getting harder to uh, compile stuff myself from the command line anymore. Yeah. Because you have to like, you have to use the IDE to, um, well, at least with like iOS, you have to use Xcode to get your application onto your device anyway. So once I got the Samsung laptop, that was a 12 inch display and it was high DPI. And, um, that kind of opened my eyes to like how much screen real estate I'm missing on this 11 inch model. Right. So I think, um, since the MacBook, the one that they just refreshed is 12 inches, but the keyboard sucks. I can't get it. I think the new, I think they're going to drop the MacBook Air and then just update the MacBook Pro with the 13 inch and 15. Maybe. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I think that once the new MacBook Pro 13 comes out, I'll probably get that. Nice. Yeah. I think, um, my X220 1366 by 768 and I like the form factor. I like the size of it, but, uh, honestly, I just want a little bit more from the screen. I, I just, um, I don't know if it's necessarily size that I want more, but I just want more resolution. Mm-hmm. And, and I've noticed too that, um, the older I get, the clarity seems to matter more to me too. And where I, I might've not even noticed the TN display before. Now I'm really particular about, you know, pixel density and, yeah. um, the clarity of the image and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they play these games with, Oh, you don't want a gloss finish. You want a matte finish and you want a this finish and you want a whatever finish. And, um, I'm starting to be pretty particular about that. Like when you read text in a console all day long or read code or look at a website or whatever, it's just, um, you start to really pick up on those types of things. Yeah. And I hate this trend of like, you can either get the like low resolution matte display or mm-hmm. you can get the high resolution glossy touchscreen display. Yeah. It's like, why is there no middle ground? Right. Um, I was glad that on the new X1 carbon, you can get um, a fairly high resolution. It's not like high DPI, but it's it's pretty good, and it's still matte. And then today that HP Chromebook 13 came out, or was yeah, it announced anyway? It's yeah. basically like the, it looks very much like the Chromebook Pixel. It even has like the same um, hinge as the Chromebook Pixel, and it has a 3200 by 1800 inch or pixel display. Right. On 13 inches, and it starts at like 500 bucks. Yeah, I, I know. It sounds great. So it's kind of like, well, why would anyone buy the Chromebook Pixel then? Yeah, exactly. Um, but it has an Intel processor, so um, OpenBSD might work on it. Yeah. Uh, depending on what kind of wireless card it is. So it's, uh, yeah, they announced it today. Can't order it yet, but it looks pretty neat. Yeah, I'd... I'd um... I mean, it'd make a great next laptop. I mean, for 500 bucks and that kind of resolution, that's... Yeah. The base model is like 4 gigs of RAM, and I'm assuming like some low storage because it's Chromebook. Yeah. Um, but you can go all the way up to 16 gigs of RAM, just like the uh, Chromebook Pixel. Is it uh, soldered on or is it... Yeah, uh... probably. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, the other thing I wanted to say about the MacBook Pro is that the the new iPad Pro that I have 
the it's a glossy screen obviously but it's they've put like a coating on it so that it's like i don't know 30 or 40 percent less reflective than the than all the previous ipads mm-hmm. and it really makes a big difference and i'm hoping that they can do that same thing on the macbook pro because um i hate looking at my reflection in a glossy screen all day yeah that's no good uh so i guess that's all i had to uh talk about as far as gadgets remember when we used to talk about gadgets yeah we, we are definitely uh gearheads though like still yeah we've had people complain that we talk about gadgets and uh they just want to hear about open bsd but as we said we're not an open bsd show no and in fact just to uh solidify that point i'm going to talk about uh something that you and i were chatting about last week after the show and that was um doing database inserts mm-hmm. and uh you know, you and I were kind of talking about uh, the efficient way to insert data. And so I went back and I looked at my application and I had like ABC, simple, working kind of database inserts. And then uh, I went through and I reworked a bunch of that stuff. And I would like to talk about um, the entire general like database layer uh, thing and then talk about specifically what I was doing. And, uh, so right now I've worked with ORMs like, uh, SQL Alchemy, and I really like that one. Um, many years ago I used that and it was the one that took the least to learn how to use effectively to do things more than like CRUD into a single table. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could do like, um, complex joins and, uh, d- relationships between your data really easily. I worked with um, Active Record and Rails a uh, long, long time ago, so we won't even pretend like I still remember that. I worked in um, Hibernate in Java, and well, let's just leave all those out of there. There's all these ORMs, and basically their problem is, is they're like, look at how you do something really simple in an ORM. It's really simple. And, you know, if you're going to write SQL by hand, that is also really easy to do simple stuff. But as soon as you want to do something uh, even remotely complex, the learning curve gets really steep really quickly. And so um, I'm trying to do very simple stuff with my queries at work. And I'm using Go and I'm using Postgres as my background uh, uh, backend running on OpenBSD. And I was trying to make this as efficient as possible. And you and I were talking about like, well, you know, you're, you're actually doing an insert into a table, getting an ID back, comes back into the application. And then I take that ID and I pass it into another function and I write to another table and I write to another table and I write to another table and so on and so forth sequentially until this is done. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I see that I'm doing this wrong. And so I said, I'm going to see if I can figure out how much work this is going to take to do something um, kind of complex. So let's talk about what I did. Um, I have a particular uh, table that I'm inserting data into, and it has about 10 other tables that are keyed off of that. And I used um, a with statement in Postgres we just got a new, you know, version of Postgres running that supports it, so hooray. And what with basically does is um, it lets you 
do an insert into a table, and then you can say something like with uh, claim information as do an insert into the claim table, and then you can say like insert into related table uh, and use a select statement, and you could say like select ID and then all your other values from uh, claim information, and that is like essentially your insert. Um, into this other table. So you'd say insert into this other table, the column names, select ID and all the other values and boom, you get a, a row. And for me, the particular challenge was, is that, um, I might have one piece of information, um, in one of these related tables and I might have 150 and I might have 10, I might have whatever. It just changes all the time. So I had to find a way to write my query in a prepared statement um, very, very carefully so that it's not, you know, vulnerable to SQL injection and all this stuff, but efficient enough that I can actually write a prepared statement per um, piece of information that I process. And so I did, and it works pretty well, and um, I was able to actually get all of the data inserted using one with statement and it's really, really, really fast. So that's the first part. Um, Go's database layer, um, basically, I, I just created a, a, a string to start with, and then I had kind of a placeholder string for the related tables, and um, I put, um, you know, like, um, placeholders for all the other columns that would be in that table, and... Um, when you work with uh, Postgres and, and Go, you basically say like uh, dollar sign one two three four five six seven eight for the parameter that you want to um, insert into the into the query. So I have a little accounting that happens. You know, parameters one through eight are defined in the first query, and then I nine through however many we wind up having get uh, counted as I loop through the other pieces of data, and I. Use um, sprintf in Go to take the string and substitute in the placeholders into that, and then I concatenate that onto the rest of the string. Now, string concatenation is okay at this point because um, I'm just building a prepared statement. Um, and it worked well. And that was the first part, and I was pretty excited about it. And then the other part of that is you need to also um, build the data in such a way that, uh, you know, your first parameter is what you think is going to be your first parameter, and your 180th parameter is actually what you think is going to be your 180th parameter. And so, um, in using uh, an interface, I created this uh, array of interface things, and I just start putting things into it as I know um, they... How do I say this? I started populating this array of things with the actual data um, based on like how many, uh, I'm trying not to use the exact terms, but basically for every row that I'm going to insert into a particular table, I take that row and I populate it onto this interface and keep appending things onto there. And then all you have to do once you've done that whole thing is just, um, you know, like session.exec, give it the prepared statement give it the list of parameters that you've built calling dot 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 and that expands that list of parameters out and boom and it's done. So 
Does that make sense, what I just explained? I believe so. It was a lot of work um, to get the accounting right. Um, and you might be saying, why don't you just use an ORM? Like, it sounds way easier because an ORM will do those things for you. And I will tell you that uh, I knew nothing about WIF before Monday. Um, I hadn't ever been ambitious enough to try and build my own um, uh, prepared statement for something like this before yesterday. And uh, I really just took an hour or two today to iron out the code and get it actually working. So that was my learning curve. And with Hibernate and um, SQL Alchemy and all these other tools that I've used, I don't think I could get through, you know, the first couple trivial ABC things. So maybe you're smarter than I am and those types of tools make more sense to you, but this was way easier in my opinion. Now that I've got like this insert statement working, um, I decided that rather than looping over each item, building this thing, sending the data to the database, waiting for it to save, and then come back, I decided that I was going to just fire these things at the database as hard as hard and as fast as I could. And um, I had another new concept to learn today, and that was basically uh, weight groups. And, um, basically it's super easy to implement. I just took my, um, existing code. I loop over the claims and I call save claim. And so what I had to do is I imported a new library from Go's standard library called sync. And, um, you get a weight group. Um, and then you start adding uh, an item to that weight group for every item that you iterate over. And then, uh, you need to wrap this particular function in a go routine. So there's some syntax for this. It's basically like go function. And then you have your open curly braces and you have your existing code. You do your weight group add, you call your function, you say, um, uh, weight group done then you close your curly brace and then you close your um, parens and at after all that stuff happens you call like wait group dot done and all that does is it ensures that you if you fired off a thousand go routines to save stuff to the database when it's actually done doing that work and all of the go routines return then the function the function will exit rather than saying like, okay, I'm done, like right away, and having 10,000, you know, go routines off in the background. So, I mean, to me, that was so easy to do. And I think that's what you and I were talking about, um, you know, last week at the end of the show, um, inserting multiple pieces of data with a single insert. So in the case you had like 15,000 orders, you would just say insert into orders, and then the 15,000 orders rather than insert into orders order one and order two and order three and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what I did, and it turned out really well, and um, I went and I showed my boss how it wound up looking, and he seemed to be, he's like, that's really elegant. And I said, it's really not elegant, it's basically like very simple, and it's just what they had in their docs and in, their, in the man pages in Go, and it was enough to, you know, really solve a business need. So anyway, I was impressed with that, and I thought that it worked well, and I thought that it was worth sharing 
um, because I've seen a lot of people struggle with ORMs and database persistence and doing complex things. Um, I'd like to get some code published pretty soon just so that I have it for myself somewhere how this particular thing works because I'm really happy with the, the solution. Nice. Um, what is the name of the ORM that you use aside from the query that you had to write? Um, SQL Alchemy. Okay. For, um, is it only for Go? Uh, SQL Alchemy is only for um, Python. Oh. Uh, I didn't use an ORM in Go. This oh. was just literally writing SQL by hand um, using string concatenation. Right. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, so there was no ORM for the Go stuff that I was doing. Have you used them in the past? I'm just wondering because uh, something I wanted to write in Go, and I'm not sure what ORM to use. Um, I've I used Go uh, Gorp Go ORP, and it was similar to the other stuff where it did the easy stuff well, but as soon as you wanted to do something you know, more complex. It, it seemed like more of a pain than it was a benefit. Yeah. Uh, in active record with rails, um, they somewhat recently, uh, implemented the, uh, a rel, uh, stuff, which, uh -huh. um, a relational algebra, uh, sounds complicated, but it was basically like, it seems like they're trying really hard to not require you to write actual SQL. So, mm -hmm. like, the Ruby code that you end up writing is, like, um, users dot where, and then in parentheses, users bracket, uh, the, um, symbol for name, bracket, a uh, close bracket dot eq, and then in quotes, someone's name. Right. So that users is users dot where, and then in parentheses, users, and then bracket, like, that's all Ruby code that's getting, um, translated into a SQL query select star from users where users that name equals whatever. Right. Um, and it, I don't know, like you have to write code that's just as long. So like to do comparisons, it's like users dot where, and then users bracket age dot GT. And then in parentheses, 10 is a way to write select star from users where users dot age is greater than 10. Right. And it's like, what is that really saving you? Like, it's, I don't know, it just seems like if you're going, if you're doing that much work to avoid writing SQL, just write the SQL. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have any trouble writing SQL. Like, it, yeah. it doesn't phase me because, like what you just said, you're going to write the same thing in code with objects, and then what happens when your data structure changes, you don't know. Um, but SQL doesn't seem to bother me too much. The only problem that I, the only complaint I have is, you know, translating... SQL null types to a data type, um, like some sort of data structure. Like that part is still a pain point for me. Um, and, and basically getting a result set back that needs to go on to a complex data structure, that still is a little bit of a pain point for me. But other than that, I, I don't see the benefit of it for easy stuff at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, like all of the, those queries that I were just saying are pretty easy. And I guess the advantage is that you can have like a method that would return a users dot where whatever, and then you can kind of chain those together. So instead of having to write a new query for each scenario, you mm -hmm. can just chain like dot where things to it. 
I guess that's useful, but yeah, I don't know. It's just one of those things where it's like, if you are this far removed from SQL, then when it breaks or you need to do something complicated and you have no idea what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, and for me, someone that's written SQL for many, many years before ORMs were even like a neat thing, it would take me like twice as long to learn all this, to learn how to do it in this particular library than to just give me an interface where I can write raw SQL. Yeah, I, I feel the same way a lot of times. So I mean, I use the I use Active Record to do like a lot of the easy stuff, and it 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 is cleaner than having to write SQL queries everywhere. But um, like all this uh, relational algebra stuff, um, just seems like it's more work than it's really worth. Yeah. Um, I mean, and a like real example is uh, somebody was people have like submitted pull requests to me for the lobsters site. Uh, for the Rails code that runs the site, which is open source. And so they started sending me diffs to kind of clean up some of that uh, SQL code and make it more like using a lot more of this ARAL stuff. Mm -hmm. And now like um, a year after it's been there, like it doesn't really make sense to me and it's not clean and I have to change it all anyway when I want to do something. So it hasn't really bought me anything. And it just seems like it's... Uh, another layer of, of of abstraction that doesn't need to be there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what a lot of people um, do is like they see something new. They're like, hey, we need an excuse to try this out. And you try it out and then, you know, you look back on it and you're like, what was the point of this? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, yeah, we tried it out, but why did we put it in this production code? I mean, it, it provides no value and now we have something that is harder to read and maintain than what we had before. Yeah, it's kind of like the uh, premature optimization thing. Like you're writing it for the yep. future to say, well, down the road when you want to write all these complex queries, you can chain them all together. And it's like, well, yeah, but for the years leading up to that when I don't need to do any of that, it's complicated and I don't understand it. And it like gets in the way of uh, changes that aren't taking advantage of any of that. Right, for sure. So, yeah. So, uh are you happy? You're happy with your uh, database solution? Yeah, I am. Um, it's one of those things where I've come from big ORM environments, like huge applications that are written using ORMs, and I've come from actually at the same place. Um, you know, solutions that are just tens of thousands of lines of SQL statements, <laughs> and um, I've seen. Uh, one, what it takes to write both of those up front. Uh, they get a new employee, what the training looks like, uh, the difficulty in writing SQL by hand versus the ORM stuff by hand, and then the people who have to maintain it. Um, the headaches were always with the ORM side. Training new employees took longer. Writing new queries took longer. They took, they were harder to troubleshoot harder to track down when things weren't working properly. Um, you'd get pages going off in the middle of the night. Well, why is this thing pegged so bad? And they're like, I don't know. We're just doing a search for this thing. And then you realize that there's like 10,000, you know, uh, subqueries happening or something that they didn't know about. And maintaining uh, the, the code always seemed to be a big problem because the ORM would have a you know, vulnerability, and they don't just, like, patch a certain version of it. You have to upgrade the entire library, and when they do that, there'd be breaking changes, and you'd have to refactor code, and yada, yada, yada. And that was one of the things that the SQL uh, code did really well. You know, like, 
hey, who's calling this code here? Nobody? Delete it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hey, we're using this in four places, but I have a new one for this other particular thing. You can leave the existing one in place using the same data structures, create a new one that does this new feature for this other thing, and uh, deprecate the other ones as, you know, they become obsolete or you migrate them or whatever it happens to be. And, yeah, it always seemed to be a little bit better in the stuff that I saw to just write SQL by hand, and I'm happy that I did this um, in Go and uh, used Postgres with and all that kind of stuff. It definitely seems really elegant to me compared to what I had before and providing a great benefit, too. Just the inserts are happening uh, really, really fast, so I'm happy about it. Cool beans. Uh, Did you have anything else? No, that was all I wanted to talk about. All right. Um, I guess that's it for this episode. So if there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about in a future episode, you can reach us on Twitter at Garbage. <laughs> I don't know where that accent's coming from. Y'all come back now, you hear? Yeah, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM and through our website at Garbage.FM. And I recently added a link to our Google Play Music link. Oh, wow. Now I, I guess can that's listen. a thing now. Uh, Is it? You can listen or find podcasts through Google Play because they want in this game. Yeah, we actually did have somebody request that. I've I've had um, a couple people in um, in real life. I know that sounds so strange to say, <laughs> but people that I I know and they're like, oh, I looked for it on uh, Google Music and I didn't find anything. So anyway, now they'll be happy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Somebody asked on Twitter to add it, and I replied and said I added it when they announced the beta. So it's been in there forever. I don't know why they couldn't find it, but it's there now. And what is the deal with Google and having URLs for everything? Like Google Plus profile pages? Like your URL mm-hmm. is completely nonsensical. The <laughs> Google Play Music URL for our show is play.google.com slash music slash listen slash PS slash IMPV6UPPOXN. Like, what's the deal? That's so dumb. Why don't they at least, uh, you know, I, I get you have to put like a unique identifier in the URL, but like if you look at how it is on iTunes, it's iTunes.com slash, or iTunes.apple.com slash US slash podcast slash garbage slash ID 105, whatever. So at least if you look at the URL, you have some kind of idea of what you're going to. Right. But with a Google URL, it could literally be anything. You're not sure if it's malware or if it's just Googleware. Yeah, or some weirdo's Google Play or Google uh, Plus profile. <sighs> now well, I'm getting all upset. Oh, man. I, I didn't mean to get you all fired up. I just signed up to garbage on Google Play, too. Nice. So. Google, uh, speaking of Google Plus, Brandon, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Google Plus with a weird <laughs> URL. <laughs> and... Uh, I'm on Twitter sometimes, but I find uh, Twitter's gotten to be kind of irritating too. So uh, I'm at No Mercy Mod there with a K N O W. So look me up. Um, I'm on the web at jcs.org, and I kind of want a new website soon. Uh, and on Twitter at jcs. I had I had one today, but I don't think it's uh, PG thirteen rated. So you had one what? Uh, a new a new idea for a domain. Oh, is it cvshub.com? 
No, it's worse than that. <laughs> I need to go back and listen to what we, or what, when we f- first talked about that, I looked at the page and it was like very expensive, mm-hmm. but now it says it's $2,000. I don't know if that's what it was before, but that doesn't seem like a whole lot of money if we're going to be making a VC backed web 2.0 startup with CVS hub. I mean, I think we should have to pay at least, you know, 20 grand for the domain. Yeah. Cause then uh, the, the company is worth at least 20 grand. Exactly. You have some, uh, some IP you can sell right. the domain when the company folds because it inevitably will, because it's a startup and has no income. If we, if we make it bad enough though, it might actually succeed. We'll get people <laughs> to convert back from get. That's right. Let me see. Hold on. I'm finding this thing that I had this morning. Oh, cause I was complaining about voice over IP. And I'm like, listen, I've never heard an echo on my analog phone. I've never had to worry about jitter or out of order packets or any of this stuff. And like this 400 or 500 millisecond delay on my USB device, like I don't even like the, they have these horrible, like, um, but anyway, digital devices are horrible. Everything about them sucks. I've never seen a good thing about these digital recording devices. The audio quality is horrible. They have these cheap junk microphones, analog microphones, analog technology, might be old, might be whatever. I mean, but you could, you could run it over some like, uh, old lamp, uh, wire and it would work just fine. You know what I'm saying? Like one of the things that I said was, um, Oh, where was it? I was complaining about that. Oh, yeah. And somebody said something about it, and I said, I have an idea. Let's call it not f***ing up as a service. And then somebody said, all you need is a a, a domain. And I said, nfuaas.io, and I'm set. <laughs> so maybe that'll be my new domain. NFUAAS is my company. There you go, and then you just don't have to tell them what it stands for if you're uh, trying to be... <laughs> Um, somebody just wrote into us while we were recording. Shame on them. Asking, uh, or saying if you guys ever get some basic merch up, give me a shout. I'd be up for buying a shirt or cap. Ooh. Could probably make some stickers or shirts or something. Yeah, we bought, um, we bought stickers, uh, you, you created one for, um, OpenBSD, what was that sh- sticker you created? Oh, the the wireframe ones. Oh, the ones on... Uh, yeah. Sticker Mule. Yeah. And so, and so I found those, and I ordered them, and I still get emails from those people who are like, hey, buy some more stickers from us. <laughs> um, yeah, we could probably uh, make some shirts. I think there's like those sites where you can design a shirt, and then people just buy them directly like Sticker Mule so that I don't have to get 50 shirts made and then handle or deal with shipping them to people yeah awesome all right so if we make that stuff we'll let you guys know i guess this is like the post show since we've already ended our show the late late show so we can just like abruptly stop talking and whatever yeah but anyway technology sucks and um that'll be on the back of the shirt (laughs) (laughs) no surprise there Oh, man, I, I can't wait to publish this database query because I feel like 
I, I want to do like this compare and contrast. I just feel like it's so much of a home run and I don't, I haven't really objectively looked at it. I just, it didn't feel horrible and I thought that was a huge win <laughs> as database stuff went. Just put it up on uh, my GitHub gist. Yeah, and then somebody will tell, you know, oh, you know what? I should have complained about this stuff this week. <laughs> I should have. All right, I'm still recording, so it can go in. Mm-hmm. So, so this week alone, I have found n- no less than a dozen people on the Internet who admitted they're wrong or published stuff that is obviously wrong, and it, and it has, like, the highest accepted uh, um, upvotes or accepted answer or whatever it is. Okay, so OWASP. I worked a little bit in the uh, financial services sector. We went through OWASP training, and I'm just guessing here, but every training that I ever went through, they were like, hey, guess what the number one vulnerability is on the web this year? SQL injection. And so in my quest to work with these with statements, I was kind of like looking at some other people's ideas. I, I went to the Postgres docs, I went to the Go docs, and I was like, okay, I just want to make sure... Like, I, I thought I had the concept down, and I was like, let me just see what Google has to say. If anybody's already done this before, if they found any, you know, really sharp edges. And the first thing I find is somebody like on Stack Overflow or Experts Exchange or something like that. And they're like, hey, how do I do this thing? I need to build this query dynamically. For instance, I might have four results come back, and I might have a 100, blah, 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 blah. So the first response has, like, 24 upvotes, this is the accepted answer, or whatever the hell the thing is, is string concatenation, like completely vulnerable to SQL injection. And I'm sitting there just like holding my head going, what on earth? You people haven't been paying any attention. Like, and, and mind you, the OWASP stuff started back in 2010 or whatever it was, and this answer was published in 2015. So you've had five years to understand that this is the biggest vulnerability on the internet for like ages. And here people are like, yep, this is the right way to do it. It was literally what they have in the OWASP training where they're like, find the SQL injection vulnerability and fix it. And it, they could have copied this thing from Stack Overflow and they'd have been set. The second thing I found was, um, I was looking at, um, I forget what. I don't, I don't remember what I was looking at. And I, and I stumbled across this guy's blog and I'm reading through the code and I'm like, this is stupid. Why would you do that? Like, this is dumb. And then I go back to the top of the blog and I'm like looking around to see what he's, you know, talking about. And he's like, attention. Um, as someone on Reddit pointed out, the information in this blog is dangerously inaccurate. And I'm like, listen, if if your information on your blog is dangerously inaccurate, get it off the web. Stop doing this. Like, don't say like, oh, attention, update, you know, this is wrong. Get it down. Like, mm-hmm. don't do that stuff. And it was. Like, it was abysmal. So um, those are just the two that made the highlight real, I guess. <laughs> but I, I saw so many things on the Internet this week, and I was just like, this is wrong. This is absolutely wrong. How can people just keep um, perpetuating stuff that is blatantly wrong? Um, and, you know, I, I was talking with uh, TJ, and he did that long write-up, uh, just like um, an objective look into FreeBSD versus OpenBSD. 
and it was really well written. He got a lot of great feedback from people who work on FreeBSD, a lot of great feedback from people who work on OpenBSD, but there was this one troll response or whatever, and the guy, oh, no, 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 this is this and that's that, and TJ's like, no, that's wrong. Replied to it, cited the information uh, that TJ was uh, referencing, and sure enough, I mean, the source code says plain as day, we use X, and the guy was like, they use Y, blah, 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 blah. And of course, this guy gets like a bunch of karma or whatever thumbs up or likes or whatever the hell the internet has these days. And, you know, the the factual information that is actually right, citing references, showing document, supporting documentation, nothing. And I'm like, ah, eh, whatever. But it's just one of those things where you, you just can't help but hold your head at the, at the amount of rubbish that just keeps getting uh, perpetuated through the internet that's just completely wrong. That's the internet, man. It's all about being wrong and... <sighs> Dangerously inaccurate. Dot com. Is that taken? <laughs> <laughs> it might be now. And then if it is, just buy it and then redirect it to stackoverflow.com. <gasps> okay. Hold on. I'm buying it. And this is going to be like public shaming 101 right here. Are you trying to beat me? Uh, I could. <laughs> no, I'm not. Unless you want me to register it for you. There's wildlyinaccurate.com. <laughs> talking about... Wow, and it's talking about Node.js and NPM. Close enough. Oh, I spelled it wrong, and that's, maybe that's why it's available. <laughs> there was a typo. Hey, it's talking about ErgoDocs. Hey! They are on GitHub as wildly inaccurate. <laughs> Doc, dot com. If it's going to be good, though, and legit, I need a .io, don't I? Dude, nothing legitimate lives at a .io domain. Not for $95. Okay. It's not that funny of a joke. Wait, what's $95? .io. Oh, yeah, screw that. Just get a $9.com. Did you get it? Almost. Hey, if anybody who works on Inbox is ever going to listen to this show, you need to fix your search function so it doesn't, like, restart halfway through you typing your search phrase because your JavaScript took seven seconds to load. What is Inbox? Thanks. Uh, this front end for... um. Uh, Gmail. Wait, Google's bad at search? Oh, yes. And JavaScript? Yeah, imagine that, right? Oh, good, I can't remember my password. Dude, I keep looking at this Chromebook 13 page. You want it, don't you? I do, and they won't even let you. It's just, you can fill out a form and they'll remind you when it's available. So why don't you just make it available now? Take my money. Stay in the loop. Right? Do you need me to register it for you? I could have no, had it done already. Right. Someone might be listening and taking it as we speak. No, no, no. I'm going to get it. Just have to go through this fun process of forgetting my password. Who do you register through? Joker. Oh. I just moved all my stuff to them. I see. How do you okay, take a company we... seriously called Joker? It's all fun and games. 
Until someone's domain gets hurt. Yep. Alright, let's see. There's two C's. Inaccurate. Oh, did I spell it wrong? I don't know. Just Inaccurate. So I need to register the wrong domain. Dangerously misspelled. Joker actually uh, has multi-factor authentication. Mm. Marvelous. There we go. Chiching. Oh man, that cloud is now available. Oh nice. You register one called someone else's computer dot cloud. <laughs> Well, dot computer is a thing. Someone else's dot computer domain not found. Aww. Here we go. Someone else's dot computer. Boy, we came out of this show spending money. And we didn't even get new laptops. <laughs> 